So, um, of all the birthdays I can remember from my childhood, one of them stands out more than any other. And I think it's because it's the birthday I received a very important gift. It was 1984, and the toy of the year came to me on my 7th birthday. I have a picture of what I found on the internet. It looked very much like this. The Cabbage Patch doll. Anyone who was alive in the 80s remember them? Yeah, that was a thing. This was like the fall after, like, it was like the, the Christmas toy of the year where everyone was like beating each other up at Toys R Us to try to get one of these. So that following summer, I obtained a Cabbage Patch on my seventh birthday. However, my elation of receiving this ultimate treasure was significantly lessened when my parents brought out another box, similar looking to mine, and presented it to my three-year-old sister. It looked like this. Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, it was not her birthday. <laughs> but we were on the midst of like this old-school road trip summer vacation. My birthday's in July, so it's like right in the middle of summer travel season. And, you know, it's one of these vacations where we were like traveling to the Midwest from California, across the country, the back of a van. My sister, three-year-old sister, had a chicken so my parents announced that for her suffering with the chicken pox on vacation, she also deserved a gift. She also deserved a cabbage patch doll. Now I have to say, as a parent, all these years later, the logic makes some sense to me. Okay, my parents were likely trying to minimize the amount of rivalry between us by recognizing that a toy of this much value was going to cause extreme angst in our home, so they looked for an excuse to get one for each of us. And they thought my sister's untimely chicken pox was as good an excuse as any. But for me, this was a profound injustice. <laughs> it was my birthday! My sister had had hers a few months before. I had gotten any presents then. In fact, I didn't get a fancy doll when I had had the chicken pox either. This was unfair. Why should I have to share the thrill of my special day and its most special gift with my annoying, snotty face, diaper-wearing, chicken-pox-picking sister? It was bad enough that I had to suffer the tragedy of a summer birthday that nearly always took place in the middle of a family vacation when all my friends were gone. But this indignity was too much. (laughs) I resented my sister and my parents for a long time for that event. Honestly, much longer than I'm proud to say as an adult. And I think the memory of that birthday lingers like 35 years later because profoundly it was like the first memory that I really have of like deep sibling rivalry. It's the first deep memory I have of feeling that knot in my stomach of anger envy, competition. And sadly, that would characterize my experience on and off with my sister for years in our childhood. I found myself experiencing both the greatest love and affection for her that I could imagine, and that could easily turn on a dime to deepest sense of betrayal, frustration, seething jealousy. Can anyone relate? 
you've had a sibling, do you have that first memory of when it was hard? Well, I had the opportunity to visit Southern California recently, and I spent the better half of the week with my sister and her family. I have a picture of us from our trip. We were at SeaWorld. It was so fun. It's really a joy, like an immense joy, and I say that genuinely, to be with her. As adults, we really enjoy one another. We really love spending time together now. But it has taken us a while to get there. I think it's taken each of us like growing into being our own people who don't feel their identity caught up in comparison to each other. Right? We've each been able to forge our own paths as adults, as our, as our older brother as well. So we're able to like stand, I think, alongside each other, more confident in our own sense of self, as well as clear on how we're similar and how we're different and be okay with that without constantly needing to evaluate or grab more attention and power. It's nice. But I can see this grasping dynamic, grasping for power, grasping for attention in my kids. And when I do, it irks me as a parent, but I can also relate to it because I've lived it. The rivalry is real. Sibling relationships often highlight it the most, I think, as we vie from a young age for that scarce resource of our parents' time and attention and energy. Well, I start with this reflection on sibling rivalry because it's very connected to the story that we're going to look at today, which is another ancient story found in Genesis as part of our origin story series. We've got one more teaching in this series after this. And so today we're going to look at the story of Joseph. Okay, and as you see, this, like so many stories that have come before it, including the one we examined with Rabbi Dorothy two weeks ago, is a story of rivalry between siblings. And that rivalry, what it leads to in this story, and then what comes of all that, I think actually has profound capacity to reveal truth to us about our own human realities, as well as how God might consider this kind of drama. So let's start with the story. Okay, We start learning that Joseph is the youngest of Jacob's many sons. There are 11 at the start of the story. And remember, Jacob had his own rivalry with his twin brother Esau, right? Theirs was the story we looked at a couple weeks ago. And as he was hiding out from his brother who wanted to kill him at the time, he ended up marrying a pair of sisters, which fueled a sisterly rivalry worse than two kids and a set of Cabbage Patch dolls, right? Then Jacob, the sisters, their servants, they all have like lots of kids, And Jacob, also known as Israel, ends up with a whole host of sons, okay? So eventually he's going to have 12. At this point, there's 11, which is Joseph's number 11. And this is how Joseph's story really gets going in Genesis 37. Now, Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son born to him late in life. And he made a special tunic for him. And when Joseph's brother saw that their father loved him more than any of them, They hated Joseph and were not able to speak to him kindly. So already in the setup, you can see the sibling rivalry at play. Dad's love and attention is considered a scarce resource, and one brother has a disproportionate amount of it. He even gets a special tunic, what Andrew Lloyd Webber musical theater fans will always know as the Technicolor Dreamcoat. See? And the rivalry continues to go from there. 
The writers of Genesis tell us that Joseph begins to have dreams. He announces them to his brothers. The dreams are about things like them all bowing down to him one day. And that's probably not the wisest move to tell them about it because it fuels their envy even more. Next, the brothers are off grazing their flocks away from home. And Jacob sends the teenager Joseph to go follow after them and report back to him. And here's what happens next. Picking it up in verse 18. Now Joseph's brothers saw him from a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the mas- this master of dreams. Come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of the cisterns, and then say that a wild animal ate him. Then we'll see how his dreams turn out. When Reuben heard this, he rescued Joseph from their hands, saying, let's not take his life. Reuben continued, don't shed blood. Throw him into the cistern that's here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so he could go rescue Joseph from them and take him back to his father. But when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the special tunic that he wore, and then they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. When they sat down to eat their food, They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying spices, balm, and myrrh down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. But let's not lay a hand on him, for after all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianites' merchants passed by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. The Ishmaelites then took Joseph to Egypt. So there it is. The effect of all this envy and rivalry reaches a boiling point. And as it does, something has to be done. Joseph is expelled from his family, sold into slavery by his own brothers. Now, probably the most helpful perspective I've heard on this story comes from what might be to you a surprising source. René Girard was a philosopher, anthropologist, literary critic, who taught at Stanford for decades until he passed away a few years ago. Now, Girard was a French atheist thinker who eventually came to Jesus-centered faith uh, because of what he saw in the Bible and how radical it was compared to the stories told by other ancient cultures in their founding myths, their origin stories. He was an expert in ancient myth, and Gerard noticed that the stories in Genesis and beyond bear striking resonance with other stories told by other cultures, but they subvert those stories in a very important way. And it has to do with how these stories treat envy, rivalry, and the violence that that produces. Now, I did teach a whole series on this stuff about a year and a half ago, so some of you will have heard this, but I think it's so helpful, it's really worth considering again and again. And for others of you, if this is of interest and you want a deeper dive, you can go back. If you didn't hear that series, you can hear them online. I'd also love to recommend a book that just came out that fleshes a lot of this stuff out. Um, It's a book by a couple of other Blue Ocean pastors from Ann Arbor, Solace Jesus by my friends Emily and Ken. Emily came and did our retreat a couple years ago, so some of you might remember her. Their book just came out, and it goes a lot into the work of Rene Girard and its implications. So I'm going to take a pause from our story to kind of explain Girard's big theory. 
And then we're going to look at how it could illuminate the story. Okay? So Girard developed this theory about how humans function based on a survey of literature from ancient myth through the contemporary novel. It was kind of the set of inspiration. And it starts with, what, with point one. The foundation of the theory is what he called mimetic desire, which means like desire based on imitation. Girard believed that as much as we want to think that we come up with desire on our own, that it's like innate, that we're motivated by like drives inside of ourselves, we actually learn what to value and desire by watching others around us. We imitate. We're mimetic. Okay? We imitate others and we begin to cultivate similar desires. Then that leads us to point two. Eventually, these desires lead to envy and rivalries between us. We both want a Cabbage Patch doll, and we both want to be the only one who has it. Okay? Particularly as there's a sense of scarcity of resources, it makes sense, right? If we all want the same thing, we can't all have it. Okay? Envy and rivalry forms. We see this in the Jacob and Esau story, right, a couple weeks ago. The brothers struggle over the birthright. They struggle over the father's blessing, as if there's only one of those to go around. And this brings us to point three. Eventually, in groups, this becomes magnified, and tension escalates in the group. And the group needs an outlet for its violence. Otherwise, it would just explode with everyone killing each other. Okay? So that annihilation doesn't kind of happen in every group. Instead, Girard noticed a pattern that seemed to be found in the founding myths of many ancient cultures. And he believed is basically kind of the origin of lots of ancient cultures. And, and then he would see it again and again after that. That a group identifies a single victim to receive the collective violence of the group. Girard calls this the scapegoat mechanism. Or the single victim mechanism. Okay, the idea is a single victim, or it could be a minority subgroup within the larger group becomes identified, and it becomes the target of the group's overall aggression. Usually, somebody is singled out really for anything that could make the individual other, different. It could be just that they're the youngest. It could be their race. It could be their sexual orientation. Anything that could make somebody other. So the group falsely accuses the victim of something that dehumanizes them. It's important to notice this is generally often a false accusation, but it's one that strips the victim of their humanity. People, when they're scapegoated, are often innocent of the crime they're actually accused of. And further, the accusation being made by the mob is often true of the mob itself. So this can be done in all kinds of ways that we can see around us. So identifying a racial or religious minority, labeling them as a group to be terrorists or rapists, criminals. It's done by ignoring the clear evidence that actually people from every subgroup, particularly the majority, commit acts of violence. And those include terrorism, mass shootings, rape, or whatever it is, but the group that, um, and that, that they do that on a level that's much more than the minority group being targeted. But this group is unique enough that it's easier to let the accusation stick, right? So in a post-9-11 world, the face of terrorism in our national discourse has often been Middle Eastern. 
even though by far the greatest perpetrators of mass violence in our country in an effort to inflict terror is white men, right? This kind of dynamic can take place really in any kind of group, large or small. So we're talking about big systems just now, but it happens in family systems. Often families have a black sheep, right? That's the language we use, on which the problems of the family tend to be projected. It can happen in schools, in communities, in companies, in churches. People are often targeted for their race because they're differently abled, they speak a different language. In church, LGBTQ folks often bear the burden. And with them, often allies and queer-affirming pastors, theologians, churches. So that's scapegoating. That's how it happens. Which brings us to point four, when the scapegoat is actually subjected to violence. They are eliminated. They're either driven out, expelled from the community, or in a worst-case scenario, they're killed. And then, when, then we get to point five. When that happens, a kind of group peace is restored. When the scapegoat is eliminated, it creates a peace for a while amongst the community that remains. The tension's momentarily alleviated. It's been fueled toward this common enemy, and it's united people that might have been divided otherwise. Everyone can feel this sense of, we did something together, we got rid of the threat, Right? Often, afterwards, because of this sense of peace, everyone feels a certain relief to it, the scapegoat is thought of more kindly. In fact, in ancient cultures, the scapegoat was made a hero, even deified. People would worship the one they had expelled. And no one feels guilty because the guilt has been dispersed amongst the group. The other reason guilt is not felt is because there's a total denial that scapegoating has actually taken place. And this brings us to our last point, point six. The violence is considered justified, and the scapegoating remains hidden. The violence is considered justified, and the scapegoating remains hidden. The denial comes through the dehumanization of the victim. That's where the whole process begins. Right? You strip someone of their humanity, you silence their voice that would humanize the experience of being victimized. If that is taken out of the equation, then it's easier to suppress the truth that this person is being unjustly targeted and the violence is not, is not just. Right? To give them a voice would to be to hold up a mirror that it reveals the unjust treatment they've received by the mob. So, they have no voice. And the way the story is told amongst the group affirms that the violence was necessary, even deserved. Okay? That's some heavy stuff. Some heady stuff. But we can track with it, right? Makes sense. Let's look, take this all back to the Joseph story. As Gerard points out, with the story of Joseph in Genesis, we have a classic scapegoating story. There's tension in the home. It leads to violence. The brothers, in an attempt to relieve their group anxiety, identify a victim. He's different because he's the one with the tunic. 
and dad's favor. They accuse him of some implied crime, seeing him as boastful and full of ego. They trump that up as a crime. They feel justified in eliminating him. At first, they intend to kill him. Eventually, they decide that selling him to the group of Ishmaelites, which ironically, aside, descendants of another scapegoat in our origin stories, Hagar's son Ishmael, right? Interesting. Anyway, they sell him to the Ishmaelites. That's more lucrative. Leaves them with maybe a little less guilt. But here's what Gerard noticed is interesting about the Joseph story and what he would say makes it different from the myths it seems to be based on. In those myths, the scapegoating is hidden. The story justifies the expulsion of Oedipus Rex. He goes really into detail about the similarities between the Oedipus Rex myth in ancient Rome and also the, the Joseph story. And it's, 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 it's really interesting. It's very, it's very intense. This also the myth of Remus and Romulus, which was the founding of Rome, justifies the killing of Remus by his brother Romulus. The morals of those stories are that the violence was necessary, and therefore we don't need to worry about the effect of it. That's how most of these myths went. But Gerard would tell us Joseph's story is important and how it's different, because Joseph's story reveals the lie behind scapegoating. It reveals that Joseph is innocent of the crime for which he's being accused. Joseph's not the oppressor of brothers in this story. His brothers themselves are the ones oppressing him, right? But accusing him of kind of like potentially being oppressive. But they're the ones oppressing a brother. The fact that a couple of the brothers even object to murdering him in any way is kind of a nod, a first glimpse, a first nod to the injustice of the thing. And the story doesn't end with with Joseph's expulsion, as most of these stories in ancient cultures did. It follows Joseph, and it shows that God stands with those who are unjustly victimized. God stands with the victim. That's the other thing that makes the story different. Point two, Joseph's story shows us that God stands with the victim. Let's read on in the story a little bit. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he was successful. And he lived in the household of his Egyptian master. And his master observed that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he was doing successful. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal attendant. And Potiphar appointed Joseph overseer of his household and put him in charge of everything he owned. And from the time Potiphar appointed him over his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything he had, both in his house and in his fields. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, and he gave no thought to anything except the food he ate. So like throughout that whole paragraph, right, this theme is reiterated over and over again. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with him. Everyone can see it. Potiphar sees it. Everyone knows it. Anything Joseph touches goes to gold. The Lord is with him. God stands with the scapegoat. If you know the story, you know this isn't the end. Okay, this Joseph story is really, really long. We don't have time for all of it here. But through the twists and turns, the theme of Joseph 
continuing to be unjustly scapegoated and God standing with him, that continues, right? Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph, and when he refuses her sexual proposition, she falsely accuses of him a rape and has him thrown into prison. But again, God is with him. Eventually, the favor of God brings him to the role of right-hand man to Pharaoh, leader of all Egypt. As Joseph interprets the monarch's disturbing dreams and is put in charge of preparations for the famine that they are warned of, and this leads to an eventual ending of the greater arc of Joseph, an ending which is also a complete departure from the stories that the Joseph story may be based on. Joseph's encounters, Joseph encounters his brothers again at the end of the story, but now he's called by Genesis the ruler of the country, right? Joseph is now like basically in charge of the country, the one who sells grain to all the people in the country. And Jacob has sent Joseph's other brothers to Egypt to find food in a time of famine. And because of Joseph's insight and successful preparations, Egypt has the food and he's in charge of giving it. And the brothers don't recognize him. And this is like the perfect place for him to take revenge. But it isn't what happens. Instead, Joseph tests his brothers. He makes a false accusation. He plants a stolen item in the youngest one, Benjamin's bag. He's seeing if once again the older brothers will scapegoat one of their own. But this time, they don't do it. One brother, Judah, offers himself on behalf of the victim. He names the pain that their past act of violence has caused his father. He's not willing to do it again. And that brings us to our final episode in Genesis 45. Joseph was no longer able to control himself before all his attendants. So he cried out, make everyone go out from my presence. And no one remained with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept loudly. The Egyptians heard it, like outside. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him. They were dumbfounded before him. But Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. So they came near. And then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be upset and do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For these past two years, there has been famine in the land. For five more years, there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it is not you who have sent me here, but God. He has made me an advisor to Pharaoh, Lord over all his household, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now go up to my father quickly and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You will live in the land of Goshen. You will be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, everything you have. I will provide you with food there because there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you become poor. You, your household, everyone who belongs to you. You and my brother Benjamin can certainly see with your own eyes that I really am the one who speaks to you. So tell my father about all my honor in Egypt and about everything you've seen. But bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw himself on the neck of his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. 
And after this, his brothers talked with him. The story doesn't end with retribution. It doesn't end with more rivalrous violence. It ends with heartfelt emotion and peaceful reconciliation. It ends with the scapegoaters having named their sin and turning from scapegoating. While the victim is no longer in a vulnerable place, he has been rescued. He has been empowered. He has been blessed. And from that place of strength and vindication, he is able to grant forgiveness and to reconcile with those who had hurt him. The one who would have been the next victim, Benjamin, He has been spared. He has the blessing of being seen as who he is, an innocent who is being unjustly targeted. That's deep stuff, right? It's pretty moving. But what makes it revolutionary? For Gerard, the way this story ends fully highlights how radical these ancient texts in Genesis were compared to the myths the authors seem to be modeling their story after. Gerard points out, I have a couple quotes here, that this ending confirms in unequivocal fashion the biblical opposition to mythic collective violence. I know this is heady, but it makes sense what he's saying, right? The author is rejecting the myth, the mythic violence of scapegoating. Like many biblical stories, he says, it is a counter mythical story. Because in myth, the lynchers are always satisfied with their lynching. It's counter-mythical because in myth, the lynchers are satisfied with their lynching. Gerard wasn't threatened by the fact that our stories in Genesis look an awful lot like ancient myths, okay? Some Christians find that really threatening. He assumed that these stories were written, inspired by, and in dialogue with those stories. I want to remind us of our first teaching in this series when I I posited that the main question we should be concerned with when we approach this part of the Bible isn't what happened in a historical sense, but why did the people of God tell this story? Okay, why did the people of God tell this story? Why did they write these stories down? And we know that they wrote them down when they returned from exile to Babylon. Why did they tell these stories then? What Gerard argues, I think, really helpfully is that the ancient Hebrews who wrote down the stories were doing something unique. You see, in the wake of they themselves suffering violence, having their government, their religious temple destroyed, being torn from their promised land and exiled to Babylon, and then returning to their homeland traumatized by all that had happened. These people of God in PTSD had a radical insight that was woven throughout their sacred texts that God does not stand on the side of those who use violence. Amen? God does not stand on the side of those who use violence to intimidate, to dehumanize, to oppress. Their God's not like the pantheon described in the myths that supports scapegoating. Their God reveals scapegoating for what it is, a lie. It is unjust. Their God stands with the victim. Their God teaches vengeance isn't the answer to the problem of violence. Instead, we need to name our wrongs. We need to take responsibility for them rather than projecting them on someone else. We need to seek forgiveness. Amen? 
Rene Girard went from a skeptical atheist literary scholar to a man who sincerely put faith in Jesus. And he did this because he saw in the Jesus story the full revelation of divinity. Jesus going even further than what we can see in Genesis. In Jesus, God becomes the scapegoat. God's not just standing with the victim. God is becoming one who would be completely unjustly victimized. One who God's self would suffer rejection, dehumanization, execution on a cross. Jesus came preaching the way of nonviolence, the way of reconciliation, calling folks to turn the other cheek, subvert the mimetic rivalry within themselves, even though he fully knew that meant the mob would eventually turn on him. Jesus knew what it means, knows what it means to be scapegoated because it cost him his very life. And when he rose, he showed clearly that the scapegoating itself was a lie. The verdict of the mob didn't stand. The death was not justified, similar to Joseph before him, but in much more dramatic fashion. Jesus came back, revealing his own innocence, revealing he was unjustly killed, and in so doing, he brought companionship and freedom to every victim, to every scapegoat. And he also brought the power to grant forgiveness to and reconciliation with all who are able to recognize their own place in the mob and turn from it. That, I believe, is the gospel. The good news. So what does all this heady theorizing about a very ancient story have to do with any of us? I don't think you have to look very hard to see much of what Gerard was talking about at work amongst us today, right? Social media thrives on mimetic desire. It seems to weaponize it, honestly. In fact, in a somewhat frightening note, Peter Thiel, the big Bay Area venture capitalist, he was actually a student of Rene Girard's at Stanford. And he chose, as a venture capitalist, to invest in Facebook because he believed in mimetic theory. And he knew that social media would be really powerful because of it. We can see violence and dehumanization happening in places all around us. All of us are faced regularly with choices to remain silent, to be complicit, to turn a blind eye to injustice by participating in the mob, or to follow the God of Joseph and of Jesus, one who calls us away from accusing and dehumanizing others and towards seeing ourselves and others more clearly and standing with those who are unjustly targeted. So I'm going to end today with a moment of meditation. I'm going to lead you into a little contemplative, meditative experience for us to take this out of theory and kind of have a moment to connect with the spirit about where any of this might resonate with us. Okay, so I have a few prompts. There's going to be three prompts. I'll kind of lead us through all of them, but one of them might be what resonates the most for you, and I would invite you to kind of apply your energy there and throughout our time of responsive worship. If all of them resonate in different ways, then that's also something to explore. Okay, 
So go ahead and just enter a place of quiet, of centering. You can close your eyes if you want. You can keep them open. Take a few deep breaths. And I'll just uh, speak us through this prompt. Invite the Spirit to be present with you in a place of invitation, believing that God's Spirit actually does speak to us and wants to stir things in us that would help us hear God's voice. With that in mind, where are the places that you've participated in the mob in the past? Standing with those ten brothers who cast Joseph out. How have you participated? Were you one who identified someone that was different? Were you one who created an accusation that could then circulate? Or did you participate through silence, seeing what was happening, perhaps not agreeing with it, perhaps aware that it was unjust, but unwilling to pay the cost of speaking out? What would it mean for you to confess your participation to Jesus and receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Our next prompt is this. Where are there places where you have been scapegoated? For what were you identified? Who were those who eliminated you? And what does it mean for you to experience God's presence, perhaps in a foreign land, in exile, like Joseph? What does it mean for you to experience Jesus' solidarity with you on the cross? How does Jesus' vindication and Joseph's speak to you about your own? Finally, a third prompt. Who are the scapegoated in your world that Jesus might be calling you to stand with today? Who are the scapegoating in your world Jesus is calling you to stand with? What does solidarity with the scapegoated look like for you?
Jesus, we come to you aware of the ways of our mimetic nature, of the ways that we're so prone to envy, to rivalry, to violence. We confess the ways that we are caught in the mob. We invite revelation. We thank you for the ways that your sacred stories unveil what has long been hidden and what continues to hide. Would you give us eyes to see our own participation and the participation of others around us? And would you give us courage to stand with those who are unjustly targeted as you do, God? And where that's happened to each of us, may we experience healing in your solidarity with us. May we experience hope for new life and resurrection. Amen. Thank you, friends.